Good morning. Before we begin our sermon this morning, I want to tell you uh, just one more time, we have a special guest speaker coming next week. Uh, John Reed is going to come and share with us about being a welcoming congregation, how we welcome people into uh, our assemblies, how we welcome them into our homes, how we welcome them before they've even set foot inside of our doors, how we as a congregation might do a better job of being a welcoming place for people. This is uh, part of what we're going to call our welcome home ministry. Some people might think of it as guest relations, uh, but really it's just about how we receive people and how we receive them well. And in many ways, that's actually what our sermon series has been about. The idea that God has built a place to receive us, and we are active in helping to build that place to receive others. That's really kind of the theme of the book of Ephesians. And so as we're reading through it, we see that God has planned from the very beginning to build a home for himself and us, a place where he dwells and we dwell. Then he has handed over a lot of opportunity for us to build as well, to build up the body of Christ. He has gifted us in various ways to make this a place where those who are already here feel welcomed, are built up and encouraged, but also those who are not here yet might walk in and say, this feels like home. One of the things that we examined last week was this idea that what we're supposed to be doing is this idea of mutual submission, submitting one to the other. And Paul walks through what that looks like for various people, wives to husbands and likewise husbands to wives, parents and children. The children submit to their parents, but their parents submit to their children. And and Paul gives some really interesting ideas of what that looks like ways in which a father might submit to his child by not provoking them to anger. And then he moves to the the most extreme of these two relationships. He talks about slaves and masters. He tells the slaves to submit to their masters, and then he explains to the masters to not treat their slaves cruelly. Likewise, he tells them, masters to slaves. Remember that your servants, your slaves, know that you have a master in heaven. And the way in which you do or do not submit to your slaves, likewise, is a reflection of your master. Paul is very clear on the idea that our submission to one another is not just good behavior, Although it is that, when we submit to one another well, we are behaving correctly. But that in our submission to one another, we are testifying to the God that we believe in. We're witnessing his character to others. And we talked a little bit about the idea that when Jesus discusses with his disciples what leadership looks like, he talks about the least being the greatest, and the greatest being the least, that the one who would rule over all has to become the servant of all. And Jesus then does that himself. The idea of true submission is also the way in which we best magnify the one that we serve. So this morning, as we move into the final part of this book, something that we're going to notice almost immediately is how unusual 
the ending may seem given the way that we typically read the ending. This is what we call the full armor of God section of the book. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. This is how Paul begins this little section here. He begins with finally. Anytime that Paul uses finally, I imagine the audience is either thinking, at last, this is a really long sermon and I'd like to go home, or I'm going to fall out the window and die. And, you know, that's a possibility with Paul, believe it or not. Or they're thinking, just a little more. We just want a little more of the truth. We want a little bit more of your insight into what it is that God is doing in the church and how we might better be involved in that. And for those who have been listening intently to Paul's letter, those who have been paying attention carefully and thinking about the theology that he's built into, the exhortation that he's given to the church, I'd imagine that they're wondering, okay, We're in. We like the idea of God building a home for us to live in and us being participants in that household. And we like the idea of serving one another. But you know what? There's a big old world out there that sometimes doesn't want us to participate in God's work the way that you're telling us we're supposed to. What do we do about that? How can I possibly live out what it is that God expects of me when the world outside my door, outside of the household of God, is absolutely in defiance of the idea of the kingdom of heaven permeating my life, of dictating where my feet will go, what my mouth will say, of the way that I do or do not serve the people around me. And this is what Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I'll tell you this, I've heard a lot of sermons over what comes after this. People get really excited about, you know, the breastplate of righteousness and the sword of truth and all of these ideas of, like, the armor that God's going to give to us. And that's good because Paul wants us to be excited about that. But oftentimes what ends up happening is that that terminology so ingrains itself in our mind that we can't help but think that what we're supposed to do is now go out and fight a great battle against a bunch of people. And it's not entirely unfair for us to come to that conclusion because we're people who are oftentimes, when we think about the Old Testament, very steeped in the stories of battle. We we like reading the conquest of Canaan and and Joshua's great victories over uh, Jericho and over the uh, Amalekites and, and all of these wonderful battles that are fought, and we get excited about them. That's actually, it's surprising to me, if you stop and think about it, how much time we spend on those stories in our Sunday school classes. We like to tell the stories of all of Israel's victories over their enemies 
in outright warfare. And of course, oftentimes we fail to mention that like they go in with odds highly stacked against them specifically because God doesn't want them to think that they are great mighty warriors. This is not Conan the Barbarian charging in with rippling muscles and laying waste to his enemies. This is like God giving Joshua the crumbs of the people of Israel. In fact, one of the things that was pointed out to, to me earlier this week is that when God offers Joshua and the Israelite people an army, one of the things that he does very specifically is he provides a lot of outs for being involved in the military. One of the outs is if you've recently been married and you've not had an opportunity to enjoy marriage with your wife, don't go to battle. Opt out of being involved in the military. If you've just planted a crop, and there's warfare, and you know, don't, don't go into battle because you want to enjoy the crop that you planted. You know, even if you're just afraid, don't go into battle. It's all right. I've given you an opportunity in the law not to go into battle because you're afraid for your life. Well, I don't know about you, as I, as I was hearing this list coming out of uh, Kevin Youngblood's mouth out at the Expositor Seminar, I thought, at what point do you have a, an army still? Because I know plenty of professional soldiers who say there has never been a time that I've set foot on the battlefield that I wasn't afraid. There has never been a time that I've been deployed that I didn't feel at least some apprehension about what I was involved in, a little bit of fear about whether or not I'd see my wife and children again, about whether or not I'd ever set foot on the soil of my homeland again. And it came to my realization that what God has done is essentially say, I don't need you to win the battles for me. I've got that underhand. I just need someone to go and stand out there so that they know which army it was that won when they fail miserably to defeat you. You think about the military strategy of the Israelite people, marching around a wall, throwing down pots and yelling loudly and blaring trumpets, right? This is not warfare as we imagine it, but we like to think it is. As we read through the book of Joshua, as we read through David's you know, reclaiming of the, the outer you know, pieces of the, the promised land, we get excited about swords and shields and armor and helmets and all of this crazy wild stuff. But the most remarkable story of a battle that David goes into is the shedding of all that. The laying aside of the impressive armaments, the laying aside of a sword from the king. It's about a, a boy in his mid-teens going into battle with a piece of leather and some stones. Over and over again, the battles in the Old Testament are not about military might and the conquering of flesh and blood by flesh and blood. They are about a spiritual warfare between the God of Israel and the false gods of the other nations. Now, it's important for me to clarify, when I say false gods, I'm not saying that there weren't spiritual forces that God was combating that, that might have presumed themselves to have been gods. In fact, when Paul says that indeed there are many gods, something that he's referencing is a clear understanding that ancient peoples had that there were a lot of spiritual forces out there that you could align yourself with. 
But the Israelites knew the one true God, the one that had created all things, including those other spiritual forces. So when Paul begins to talk about the armor of God and our temptation is to suddenly think that God's going to make us mighty warriors clad in, in great, you know, wonderful armament to go and exact a battle against our neighbors, it's very important that he begins by telling us that's exactly not what he means. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now you read that list, and for some of us, the first thing that we think is that there's like four categories that are happening here, but the truth is, this is all a connected idea. The rulers and authorities are not separate from the cosmic powers of the present darkness. They are not separate from the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul is explaining one category against which we stand. And I can understand how someone might approach this and read it and see it as an ordered list of some kind. Well, rulers are one thing, but rulers have to derive their authority from somewhere else. The authorities, they're another thing. The authorities are in alignment with the spiritual forces of darkness, or the cosmic powers, I should say. And and those cosmic powers, they, they are aligned with the spiritual forces of darkness, of evil. But that's not what Paul is doing here. The key to understanding all of this is a single phrase that happens in the middle of this text. It's it's a single word that Paul uses. It's the only time it occurs in the Greek. It's the only time that we ever find it in all of Scripture. And that word is what we translate as cosmic powers. It is, whoa, I jumped ahead here, cosmocratoris. And I was trying to think of a way to illustrate that this week, and all I could think of was Cosmo Kramer. So if you spend the rest of the week thinking of Seinfeld, Hopefully that in some way spiritually edifies you. If not, I apologize. If you think that Seinfeld is the worst thing that's ever happened, well, we can have that conversation. Cosmocratoris. Cosmo meaning the universe, the things that are created. Sometimes we translate this as world. Um, For example, when Scripture says in John 3.16, for God so loved the... Everyone? World. The word is cosmos. For God so loved all that he had created. The cosmos is not just the concept of those things which we observe, or even the people which we observe. In many ways, John 3.16 echoes the first chapter of Scripture when God says, it is very good. God loves his creation. God loves what he has brought into existence. He loves it so much that he spent the entirety of history working towards its reclamation. But he's constantly combating something that is attempting to reclaim it for itself. That in fact, in many cases, has already claimed it, has staked a claim on the cosmos. 
Kratoros means powers. It means uh, those, those things that have some sway or hold or ability. And we only find this word, again, once in Scripture. But the truth is, it's all over in what we call Second Temple Judaism. Every book that you read from a rabbi after the building of the Second Temple discusses the concept of the cosmos kratoris, of these spiritual forces, these cosmic powers that exist within creation, but wage some kind of power, some, some kind of warfare against the people of Israel. They draw this actually from the, uh, the book of Genesis again. If you ever want to know what most things are talking about in Scripture, Genesis is a good book to go back to because all of the things that we see happening stem from somewhere. And that idea of beginnings, the genesis of things, it's a good name for the book. When you read that the Tower of Babel is this tremendous failure on the part of humanity and that God divides the nations, God makes an inheritance for himself. He chooses Israel. They will be his people. But he also offers to the Elohim, the sons of Elohim, these these spiritual forces, the governance of other nations. He divides up the peoples and chooses for himself a bunch of wandering nomads who won't settle for several hundred more years. He says, this is my inheritance. This is what I have chosen for myself. You all take whatever you want. I have a plan and a vision for what I am doing. And those other governors of the other nations, those are the cosmo Kratoris. Those are the ones that have power in this world. As we read throughout the scriptures, one of the things that we see is that the Israelites don't presume that the idols that sit in temples are gods themselves, but they very much presume that there is something behind those idols that are worshipped, that holds sway over men's hearts. And God is constantly telling the people, do not worship the gods of the Canaanites. But he's already told them not to make for themselves idols, not to worship stone and wood. So why does he have to make this other distinction? Don't worship the gods of the Canaanites. Well, you've already covered that with don't worship idols. Because there are spiritual forces of darkness in this world that would have our hearts, that would take them and treat them as though they belong to them. And I want to encourage you this morning that when Paul writes this passage, he's not talking about boogeyman theology. He's not talking about things that are hiding under your bed. He's not talking about inconveniences or even even governments that can be difficult for us that we should fear. When he talks about authorities and he talks about rulers, he's not talking about the kings and presidents in this world. He is talking about the real spiritual forces of darkness in this world. And I want to be clear, there have been times that we've come back to this passage, especially in the last hundred years, that we can find governments that are animated by these things. Historically speaking, Christians have not often thought about the ways in which these spiritual forces of darkness do in fact rule over the world. But after World War II... 
We had a name for what the spiritual forces of darkness in this world might animate themselves as. The Nazis. Adolf Hitler. We, we started recognizing that there were, in fact, ways which these spiritual forces of darkness made themselves very well known to us. The unfortunate reality is that we then suddenly jump to the conclusion that hiding underneath every president or king or dictator or government were the spiritual forces of darkness. Now, be be clear. I've told you this before. When you go to the book of Revelation and you take a look at what it has to say about the governments of this world, it's very clear that every single one of the governments of this world, every nation, will eventually go the way of Babylon But Paul's already told us that our fight's not against flesh and blood. This is not a physical fight. This is not warfare that happens on the terms of the nations. This is spiritual warfare. The things that are most likely to hamper our ability to live as the kingdom of God in this world are spiritual things. And they do animate themselves in the governments and the rulers of this world. But more importantly, they they manifest themselves in our hearts oftentimes. I want to be clear with you this morning that as we read through this passage, what Paul is trying to tell us is not that your neighbor is possessed of a demon. He's not trying to tell us that we need to go out and overthrow the the physical rulers of this world. He is not telling us that our bosses and our our, uh, tax collectors and, and those who find themselves in positions of power are our enemies. In fact, I think what Paul would tell us is that those individuals have been made captive And the battle that we wage is not against them. It is for their liberation. It is all too easy to paint our neighbors with the strokes of the cosmos crotoris. To see in their own failures, their own actions, their own thinking, our enemies. But Paul begins by telling us not to make that mistake. Your neighbors, your coworkers, the students that you share a school with, even our elected officials, when we disagree with them or we agree with them, are not our enemies. They are not the ones we are fighting against, but they might be held captive by the ones we fight against. And so then Paul moves into the ways in which we don't necessarily equip ourselves, but God has equipped us to battle against them. And we can oftentimes quote these things. I remember as a little kid, like in kindergarten, making crafts that would hang on the wall. And like each week as we talked about a different 
armor of God, a piece of the armor of God, we'd add it to our little picture on the wall. And I, like, I have vivid memories of this. And I owe a debt of gratitude to those Sunday school teachers who made it very clear that there were multiple things that, in, you know, involved the armor, that the armor of God involved. It was exciting and, and invigorating, and those images stick with me today. And as Paul outlines what that looks like, I want to remind us of where it comes from. Because Paul is not pulling a bunch of arbitrary words together here. He's not telling us, you know, I've come up with this really novel idea of the armor of God. Use your imagination for just a second here. The breastplate of righteousness. That's my idea. Paul's not claiming this for himself. In fact, what Paul has done is he's taken a number of texts from the book of Isaiah and he has kind of stitched them together to discuss what the armor of God looks like. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 5, chapter 52, verse 7, and chapter 59, verse 17, this is what Paul tells, or what Isaiah tells us, and Paul pilfers in a good way. Also, Righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness, the belt about his waist. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of those who bring the gospel, good news, who announce peace and bring good news of happiness, who announce salvation and say to Zion, your God reigns. He put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head, and he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. Now, there's some stuff lost in translation from the, Greek, the Hebrew to the Greek. I want to be clear on that. But when Paul talks about like the sandals of the gospel, he's talking about the idea of feet that bring good news. And all of this is language about the armor which God and his Messiah, this is the language that Isaiah uses, the armor that God and his Messiah will use. Now, I want to be clear. When Jesus enters the world as the Messiah, the chosen one of God who will save his people, who will conquer the cosmos cratoris, excuse me, cosmos cratoris, this is the image that's being fulfilled. Feet that have brought good news a belt of righteousness, a breastplate of righteousness, wrapped in a mantle of zeal. This is Jesus. And if Paul is referring to Jesus when he talks about the full armor of God, if the language that Paul is adopting for his his figure of what it looks like for us to do battle as Christians, we can't separate it from the ways in which Jesus did battle in this world. If this is what Jesus came equipped as, we have to ask the ways in which he used these tools for his purposes. A lot of people are jumping ahead and they're thinking, where's the whip that he drives out the money changers with, right? Like, where's the whip of indignation? I don't know. Um, I want you to think for just a moment here. Isaiah describes what sounds to us like a pretty mighty warrior 
filled with zeal and, and vengeance. He even uses that word, right? Vengeance. And Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecies. In his actions, in his interactions, in his love, his patience, and even his moments of indignation, he fulfills fully what it means to wear the armor of God and his Messiah. If we're to understand what it means to do battle against the spiritual forces of darkness, we need to get our mind off of David. We need to stop thinking about the troops of Israel marching into the land and waging warfare. Not to say that those aren't things that are important for us to reflect on and dwell on, but maybe we've dwelled and reflected in the wrong ways. Because ultimately, David can't build the temple because he was a man of war. Because ultimately, the Israelite people did very little sword fighting. And they inherited the land not based on the amount of blood that they had shed, but on their faithfulness to the God that they followed. And if our primary image for understanding the full armor of God is the same image that the Israelite people had of how this passage in Isaiah would be fulfilled, we're going to have a lot of trouble lining Jesus up with that image. And if the same armor that Jesus wore is the armor that we have now inherited to do the work that God wants us to do, we need to make sure that we're not using it in the wrong ways. We're going to look an awful lot like David marching out onto the battlefield in Saul's armor and saying, I look ridiculous. What do I mean by all this? It's important for us to know what we fight against, but it's also important for us to understand what we fight for. In fact, I previously named the lesson, uh, What We Fight For. And I changed it because I wanted to use that as my closing line, and now I'm explaining it. So it's less impactful. Isn't that wonderful? We need to understand what we fight against, but we need to also understand what we fight for. We fight against the cosmos Kratoris, the, the great and powerful spiritual beings that stand outside of our space and time. And we fight against them for the sake of our neighbors. We fight against them for the sake even of our elected officials. More importantly, we fight against them for the sake of our enemies. And we would lay down our lives for those people so that they might be liberated as we have been liberated from the spiritual forces of darkness. That's the entire message of the gospel, isn't it? That we have a God that loved us so deeply, who was so filled with honor that he could not imagine his own creation being dishonored by false deities, being caused to stumble in such ways that they were separated from him and relationship with him, that his image bearers would be demeaned and debased. So he moves into history to liberate us from the spiritual forces of darkness. 
That is the commission that we have been given. To fight in the same way that Jesus fought for the liberation of our neighbors and our enemies. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, for so long, our understanding of what warfare looks like has been drawn from the wrong place. We see nations fighting nations. We see people taking the lives of other people. We see a a combat in which the person across from us who bears your image is our enemy. And what you have called us to is to see them not as our enemy, but to see them as our brother. And to seek their liberation, even at the cost of our own lives, to humble ourselves to such an extent, to submit ourselves to one another, to show honor to one another in such a way that we might better understand the spiritual battle that lies behind the faces we see. The war that is often waged internally for our brothers and sisters. And Father, I pray that we do not see ourselves as great conquerors, that we don't see ourselves as those who are marching into a place to overcome our neighbors and our enemies but instead as people who have come to liberate, to carry the hurt and the wounded and the sick and the lost back into the house which you have prepared for us, which you have prepared for them. Help us to be faithful to this calling. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have need of the church this morning, if I can pray for you, uh, if our elders can pray for you, if there's, there's any way that we can bless and serve you, I'd encourage you to meet me at the back of the auditorium as we sing.